Hey, and welcome to episode three of Sam Splaining Science. I'm Sam, I'm your host, and I'll be Sam Splaining the Science today. Did you know that science is a verb? Yeah, it's an action word. I'll Sam Splain how that's the case today. Let's get into it. Hey, how are ya? I hope you're doing well. This week on Sam Splaining Science, we're not talking about a specific topic or idea or study, but we're talking about science as a process. Sciencing, if you will, because it's a verb. The whole point of sciencing, the motivation behind it, is to find the truth, to discover the truth, to learn the truth, to understand the truth. And this can be about anything, right? About the human body, about the environment, about the ocean, the bottom of the ocean, about the galaxy. All of these things we can use science to learn more about and to discover what's actually happening, what's actually going on. But how do we learn about these things? We study, we design experiments, we run the experiments and rerun the experiments when the first set fails. It's a whole, it's a whole thing. But with each experiment, we learn more. We get closer to the truth. And then when we make a big enough contribution and we get close enough to uh, the truth, a big enough discovery to say, this might be what's going on here. We publish, we tell the world about our sciencing. But before we do that, we need to monitor for human error, monitor for ethical problems or anything else that might take place when we're doing the experiments. And for this reason, we need a peer review process. That's something that we'll get into in a little bit. I was planning on doing another topic summary for today's episode, but something came up this week that commandeered most of my free time and it probably will continue to take up most of my free time for the next two months, and that is manuscript revisions. So I thought I'd use today's episode to, instead of researching a whole new topic, speak from my experiences and what I know about sciencing in general. So yeah, no sources linked below today. Uh, the only source is my existence, my life. Um, <laughs> I've been working in a research lab in some capacity for almost 10 years. Ew. So, yeah, my experiences working in the science field are my sources for today. Sam's tip of the day. Sometimes life is your greatest source. Hmm. That was good. Should be on a fortune cookie. So I mentioned the process of science, and I outlined a few steps that uh, are typically taken in the process of science, so hopefully this is coherent and doesn't sound like a total rant, and hopefully it's informative and uh, insightful and all of those good things. The first step is defining your research topic and your research question. Right, so here you're learning about a science. So let's say I'm interested in neurobiology or like how the brain works. 
then I'll say, okay, well, what is the brain made of? I'll go to textbooks or scientific literature, journal articles to find that there are all different types of cells in your brain, including neurons. Then I'll be interested in neurons and I'll say, well, how do neurons work? How do they talk to each other? And then I'll go back to literature for another journal article to learn about that. Finally, I'll get to a question that no one has answered before, or the field of neurobiology hasn't come to a consensus on yet. That is my research question. That's what I want to learn more about. So once I have my research question, the next step is uh, applying for funding to fund <laughs> to fund experiments that will help me address that question. And this is done by applying for grants. So basically you beg the government or other funding agency for money. And in this grant application, you'll summarize your research problem, right? So you'll basically tell them everything that you learned in the first step, all of the background information, what, all that you learned when you researched the topic. What do we know? And then what do we want to know? And that's the motivation for the study. Then you'll address, well, why does this matter? How will this project progress the field of neurobiology? How will it progress science as a whole or society? That's the significance of the study. Then we share our plan, our research plan. Here we outline experiments or studies that help us best answer our research question. We go step by step and say, well, here is the research I'm proposing. How many subjects will I use? Do I have positive and negative controls? Do I have any work that shows that this proposed research might actually work, might actually help us get closer to the truth? That's preliminary data. All of this goes into your research plan. And then your grant, when you submit it, goes to a session, basically a table of experts who work for the funding agency. And these experts read your grant, but depending on the funding agency, like the National Institutes of Health is a very large funding agency, they get lots and lots of grants. So these reviewers are reading your grant, but they're also reading hundreds of others sometimes. So not only do you have to make sure you include all of the information, like the motivation, the significance, the preliminary data, and your credentials. But you have to be concise so you don't take up too much of their time. They're moving through them very quickly. And you have to stand out. Oof. That's tough. But after this, the reviewers rank the grants that they've read. Um, and if your grant ranks high enough, you get that money, honey. <laughs> if I can go on a quick tangent for a second, I want to share an anecdote um, about the first time that I applied for a grant. This was when, it was before I got into grad school. I was applying for a graduate research fellowship program, and I basically based the research plan off of the research that I had done in undergrad, and I had all these research plans to do 
cool experiments with brain imaging and computers and all really cool, fun, exciting stuff. Um, I sent in my transcripts and the grant got reviewed. But unfortunately, it didn't get funded. And I remember I got my scores back, I got my reviews back, and I read them because I was like, what could possibly go wrong? Because like, I don't know, you work on something for so long and you plan it and you're like, this is perfect. And then you send it to somebody else and you're, they don't think it's perfect. And you're like, how? What did they think if not perfection? Um, but I remember reading my reviewer comments and I'll never forget this. It was reviewer number two because it's always reviewer number two every time. But reviewer number two says something along the lines of like, yeah, the proposed research, blah, 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 blah. Academic record, good, but not stellar. <sighs> not stellar. I had a 3.5 GPA as an engineering major. I was taking 20 credits a semester. Not stellar was an absolute dagger to the heart. Oh, I'll never forget that. I was so mad. I was so upset. Um, but, bright side, now whenever I want to say something is less than good, I always use the term not stellar because I know how much that stings. <laughs> yeah, reviewer number two, I'm sure you don't remember this because it was like six years ago, but I remember. I'll never forget. And if I ever find you, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but a three five, come on, not stellar. That's harsh. Anyway, I'm over it. It's been six years. I've moved on. No, I haven't. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. Back to the grant. Let's say you submit a grant and you do have a stellar academic record. Then congratulations. You get funded. You get that money to do that research. <laughs> a fraction of the money goes to you, like to pay your salary, but most of it goes to paying for those experiments that you promised. And once the funding agency accepts your grant and funds you or whatever, you check in with them. I think it depends on the agency, but most often it's like annually. You'll check in with a progress report to prove to them that you're using the money that they're giving you and getting the results that you said that you would. So that's kind of the grant step. It takes a very long time to write a grant, and it's very... Uh, you know, if, if it gets funded, it's worth it, but not a lot of grants get funded, so it's kind of a crapshoot sometimes. <laughs> All right, so the next step is once the funding agency approves you for the money, then, mm, so this is really speaking from my experience. I've only done my science at universities, like I've worked in research labs in undergrad and grad school, and I'm currently working at a university, so that's kind of the experience and the perspective that I'm coming from. But once your grant gets funded, there are internal offices at the university that sort of check you before you start doing your experiments. So you get the funding, and then you have to talk with your university to say, this is the experiment that has been funded by so-and-so agency. Here's why it's important, and you give the motivation and the significance of the study. But then you also describe 
each experiment that you're doing and how you're collecting your data. And you send this protocol, essentially, to the IRB, or the Institutional Review Board. And this IRB is an office full of people that work for the university, so they don't work, um, I mean, they talk directly to the scientists, but they're working for the university, so they're sort of like third party to your research. They're kind of looking at it from the outside. They're reviewing your protocols and making sure that your study is ethical. And there are a lot of off internal offices and a lot of checkpoints depending on the experiments that you're running to make sure that they are safe and ethical. So, for example, if you're working with human subjects, if I'm recruiting human participants for my study, um, I need to get informed consent from the participants before and during the experiments. So what informed consent is, is the researchers will sit down with the potential participant who hasn't officially signed up yet but is interested in participating in the study, sitting down with them and saying, um, we are interested in studying, you know, this certain brain condition. So we would like to have people lay down in an MRI scanner for an hour while we take pictures of your brain. And then we're going to analyze the pictures to look for a certain marker or whatever, and kind of give context to what, what they're doing or what they would be doing if they join the study and why it's important. And then, um, you know, kind of give them the, the rundown of like, you know, here's what you'll be doing. You'll be sitting in a scanner for an hour. After you finish, you'll take a 15-minute survey, and that's all. And then once you give them the rundown, you also have to let them know that they're free to leave at any time. If at any point during the scan, before the scan, after the scan, you no longer want to participate, you can walk away. No strings attached. No hard feelings, you know, because that's ethical. You can't force somebody to do something. So, you know, there's ethics there that come into play. So it's very important to get informed consent from all of your uh, research participants. That's just one example in doing research with human subjects. But some research, you know, uses animal models. So there, you know, there's institutional um, offices that check to make sure that the use of animals is safe and ethical, that they're cared for, that their environments are safe. Um, also offices, if your research deals with radioactivity, to make sure that you are safely handling the radioactivity and not endangering people in your lab space. So there's all these different internal offices that kind of determine whether your research is safe and ethical to complete within the university once you get funded. Um, and if they find that your work is ethical and safe, the IRB and the other regulatory offices give you the green light to start working. But you also check up with them on a regular basis, particularly if you have to change anything about your protocol. So let's just say, um, using the example from before, I now need my participants to do um, a 75-minute scan instead of a 60-minute scan. So before I change that, 
in practice, in my, in my experiments, in my lab, I need to get the okay from the IRB and justify that those extra 15 minutes are necessary before the IRB can approve it. And then once the IRB approves it, then I can implement it into my experiment. So there's a lot of like checks and balances going on between your research and the internal offices that make sure that your science is safe and ethical. So that's another thing to keep in mind when you're doing science. And honestly, one of the more important things when you're doing science is making sure that you're doing ethical work and that you're doing it safely and not endangering yourself or others. Okay, so once we get the green light from the IRB and um, my radiator, she's clanking. All right, so we get the green light from the IRB. Then we can start doing our experiments. Finally, the experiments that at this point we've been thinking about for like two years, three years, we can finally start doing them. The only thing I have written under the experiments bullet point is the word pain. <laughs> the girls that get it, get it. <laughs> No, but actually, depending on the type of experiments that you do, this step can be truly painful, exhausting, frustrating, depressing. Ooh, but the complete and total ecstasy you feel when it works, better than any drug. She says as if she's someone who's done a single drug. But, yeah, I, I didn't write too much for this section because I think... It, it's very variable, right? It depends on the type of research that you do. Some people work with, you know, cells in a cell culture plate. Some people work with animal models and have mice running through mazes. You know, some people have human participants that they observe or, you know, have laying in a scanner and they take pictures. Some people do solely computer work and do simulations and stuff on the computer. So it's very, very different depending on what field you're in and I I really don't I can't speak much on all of the different fields but basically the experiments though it's the shortest part of my outline it's the meat and potatoes if you will of the entire science meal is science a verb or is science a meal Sam you got to choose one analogy you can't do both maybe I can do both Anyway, okay, so now we're doing the experiments. We are collecting data. We're analyzing that data. We're drawing conclusions from that data. Once we complete experiments and make progress, we're learning more, working our way towards answering those research questions, we can write up manuscripts and papers that tell the world what we found so far and what we've done so far if we've made enough progress. Basically, it's like... It's like a lab report, except it's written by a grown human instead of a seventh grader, you know? But it includes, like, the introduction, the hypothesis, the methods, the results, discussion, conclusion, references, all that fun stuff compiled into a Word document. So you write this paper in hopes of publishing it in a scientific journal. Technically, you choose the journal first because every journal has different specifications as far as, like, word limit, 
how many figures you can have, formatting. Some journals put methods at the end of the paper instead of sandwiched between the introduction and the results because they choose chaos. I digress. Okay. But there's tons of different science journals, and some are more general. They feature all different types of science, like science, for example. That is the name of a science journal. Also, Nature is another very popular science journal that publishes all different types of science. There are other journals that are more specific to a certain field, like so for example, Cell is a cellular biology journal, or Neuron is a neuroscience journal. So journals have um, different scopes depending on you know, what kind of science that they include in their journal, what kind of topics and um, fields that they include in their journal. But they also have a prestigiousness. Is that a word? I don't really care. Um, they have like a prestigiousness factor that's called an impact factor. That basically measures how often articles that are published in a particular journal get referenced in other articles. So journals with a high impact factor, like Nature, for example, those journals are typically more competitive to publish in because they're more prestigious and more people want their work showcased in a, in a higher impact, more prestigious journal. So those are more competitive. Whereas journals like the Journal of Cerebral Blood Flow and Metabolism might have a lower impact factor, but they let any idiot publish in it. <coughs> Sam Rosano at all 2020. <clears throat> Omicron? No, no, no. That was just me tooting my own horn. Don't mind me. Anyway, so choose your fighter, choose your journal, then write your paper to the particular specifications. Um, write it with your colleagues and get their input and get their approval and then submit it. Done, right? <laughs> no, not even close. We're actually just getting started. <laughs> so you submit the manuscript or the paper to the journal and the journal editor looks it over and decides whether it's an appropriate article for the journal. So for example, the editor of Cell, which you know covers cell biology, will look at a submission by someone who did a physics experiment. And they'll say, um, immediately no, absolutely not. This is this has nothing to do with cellular biology. This is not relevant to the scope of the journal. And they immediately return it and say, nice try, go somewhere else. Take your business elsewhere. But if it is a good fit, the editor of the journal approves it for the next step, which is the peer review process. So in the peer review process, your paper, article, manuscript, will get sent to three different reviewers who are each experts in the relevant fields. So these experts read your manuscript and pick apart every little detail, and they critically evaluate the science you've done with a speculative eye. They know exactly the work that you're doing and can offer valuable constructive criticism that makes your science sound before it hits the presses. 
these reviewers know who wrote the paper. They know, like, the author and the institution and whatever, but the author doesn't know who the reviewers are, so it's, like, sort of blinded. Um, but basically, they read through, they review, and then after a month, the author gets comments back from the reviewers. And there's a few different options here. So I'm going to list them from best case scenario to worst case scenario. So the first option, the best case scenario, is acceptance outright. So basically, the manuscript you submitted is perfect. There's nothing to change. The reviewers had no, no critiques. There were no questions. The science is perfect, flawless in every way. And in this land, the pigs have wings, and hell is colder than New York City in January. It's not real. It doesn't happen, I don't think. It's, it's a fantasy. I've never seen it happen in real life. Um, <laughs> the second option is acceptance with minor revisions. So with this option, the reviewer suggests that you change a few things, but as a whole, your manuscript is ready for pub publication. Publication. Talking is really hard, and I don't think that enough people acknowledge that. I'm acknowledging it. Speaking is quite difficult. Um, <laughs> so yeah, they think that, you know, you just got to change a few things. Sometimes it's stylistic. Sometimes it's like, oh, you didn't mention this in the discussion and you just have to add a source or whatever. But for the most part, your publication is ready to, or your, your paper is ready for publication for the most part. I also think that this option is pretty much impossible. <laughs> At least I feel that way in my experience. Uh, I don't think many people get it unless you're a very lucky person. But that's not me. <laughs> um, the next option is major revisions required. So this option, in my experience, is the most likely. Um, based on my limited experience, granted. But um, here, your manuscript might be publishable, but only after you address some major issues that your reviewers found. This could be things like errors with your experiment, like they might ask you to run an additional experiment, including another factor. They might ask you to reanalyze your data using a different method or run a new model. In addition to the stuff that you've already done, which is acceptable, they want you to kind of go the extra step. You might have issues like with graphs and figures. Maybe they're misleading and they ask you to change them or highlight something. Um, or like maybe within the text of the paper, you don't describe the study well enough or go into the discussion in enough detail. There's just a lot of edits that need to be made before this paper is good enough to be published. Oh, and not to mention, you need to make all of these edits in the next 60 days, otherwise you lose your spot in the submission. Good luck. <laughs> but in my experience, like I said, this is the most common outcome, and as annoying as it is, it's for the best, right? Because the reviewers are checking you, and they're pushing you to do more to prove that your science is truth. And that's what we're, we're all trying to do, right? In science, we're all trying to find the truth. So they're just asking you to go an extra step to describe a little more, to take it a little further, to show 
that your science, your story is true. And that makes sure that the science is good. And that's why the peer review process is so important. So that was major revisions required option. The final option, the worst case scenario, is outright reject. This paper is not fit for publication. There's major issues with the study design or, um, you know, just major, major issues that will take way longer than the 60-day window to fix. Sometimes it's not actually that your, you know, study is awful, complete trash. It's just that the journal is very competitive and the work wasn't as significant as some of the other papers that you were up against in the cycle. At least that's what I tell myself. <laughs> but in this case, if you get an outright reject, you can usually just like play around with the word count and like the figure settings and then submit it to a different journal. And then the peer review process starts all over again, where you send it out to three new reviewers that are associated with a different journal and, you know, kind of repeat the process. So right now with my paper, I'm at the major revision stage. Um, so the three reviewers sent me back many, many comments. So now I have to address them. <laughs> Sometimes this means running additional experiments, like I mentioned, or like reanalyzing the data in a different way changing my wording. Sometimes it's a combination of all three, sometimes more. So it's work. <laughs> um, but yeah, they give you two months to fix these issues. So just making the proper adjustments to the manuscript. And then once you address all of the reviewer comments in your manuscript, in your paper, then you send the reviewers your updated paper with a letter. So the letter to the reviewers basically says, thank you very much for your thoughtful critiques. And then you go comment by comment for all three reviewers and say, you know, this is how I address this comment. You know, thank you for bringing up this point. We have addressed it in the second paragraph of the discussion section. And you kind of direct them to where in your paper you included their advice or their suggestion or their, uh, you address their question. Um, and then they review it again. <laughs> so at this point, there are a few less options than the first round. Um, so again, I'll rank them from like best case scenario to worst case scenario. But the best case scenario is they accept it. Everything that you did, all of the adjustments that you made was enough. Now this paper is good for publication. Then you work with the journal for like formatting issues and like, you know, whatever. But it's, it's pretty much on its way to being published at that point. The next option is the accept with minor revisions option. So here, again, it's just your, your paper will be accepted. You just have to change a few things, a few more like edits left, stylistic things, references. But once you fix those minor revisions, your paper is ready to be published. And then the third option, the worst case scenario, is reject. So your updates to the manuscript in this case were not sufficient. They didn't satisfy the reviewers at all. So now the paper is no longer fit for publication and they reject your paper. After all of the work that you went into of addressing their comments and reviews, and then they tell you actually, no. That is the ultimate worst case scenario. And it, I mean, I am at the stage now where this could be a potential option for me. So, it, you know, just a moment of silence in, you know, hoping that this does not happen to me. Thank you. <laughs>
Um, but yeah, so those are the three options once your reviewers look at your updated manuscript. Usually, you know, if you correctly address everything that they tell you to, you get accepted with or without minor revisions. But after all of that work, if your publication or if your uh, article ends up getting accepted, you have a publication in a journal. Yay! And then the best part is you can use this publication and the conclusions that you drew from it to motivate your next grant proposal. And then you just repeat this entire cycle until you retire or you die. Huzzah! <laughs> so that's the process of science as a whole. I hope that made sense. I hope it didn't feel like a total incoherent rant. <laughs> um, but at this point in the episode, there are two other things that I wanted to mention that I don't think I touched on enough during my rant. So the first one is that um, I didn't emphasize enough that science is a team sport. With every paper you write, it's not just you or you and an advisor on that author list because science is a team effort. In my experience, I've been so fortunate to work with interdisciplinary teams where everyone comes from a different academic background or a different perspective, and they each provide something valuable to the science that we do. So my author list in you know, the few publications that I've been on have been very, very long because it's not just me running the experiments, right? It's not just me troubleshooting when things go wrong. It's not just me designing the figures or writing and proofreading the paper. It's a team. So team, um, you know, the team environment and the team effort is very, very important in science. And if you're not a team player, then maybe science isn't for you. <laughs> Although there are plenty of people in science who are not team players, but that's a rant for another day. <laughs> But yeah, I think like in the rant that I had earlier, I said a lot of you, 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 like you do this, you apply for the grant, you get accepted, you, but it's actually not just you, it's like a team. You're all working together, you're all pulling the same rope, you're doing the most safe, ethical, the best science that you all can do together to get all of us closer to the truth. And that's one point that I wanted to make that I don't think I made earlier. The second thing that I wanted to say is more of a critique. Don't come for me, big science. You critique the things that you love because you want what's best for them, you know? So, like, I'm doing this out of love, but my critique is that the process for, or the process of publishing scientific research into journals is not perfect. Far from it. More often than not, these journals hide really cool, exciting work behind paywalls, which is fine if you work in science and like you work for a university or a company that pays for subscriptions to the journals, because then you can access the cool work no problem. But it's a huge problem for people who aren't working at a university, who aren't in science. If you don't work in science, but let's say you're super interested in like glioblastoma research or something, you are not able to access research articles that are pushing the field of glioblastoma research forward 
unless you plop down a few hundred dollars a year for a journal subscription. Or maybe you only want to read one or two articles. You still have to pay like $30 an article to read that. I believe it's like absolutely absurd to have science that impacts everyone behind a financial barrier. And I get it, like people have to make money, but one thing that, I, another thing that I didn't mention, and another thing, um, <laughs> that not only do you have to pay to read the science, but you also have to pay to publish the science. Yeah, so like, isn't that mind blowing? Like I, in publishing my research, have to pay the journal. And then if you wanna read my research, you have to pay the journal. And it's like, well, where does it end? All right, I should sign off before I get too mad. <laughs> but yeah, in my opinion, science should not be gatekept. Is that a word? Gatekept? I don't, I don't care. You know what I mean. We shouldn't be contributing to widening the gap between science and the public as scientists. That's just my opinion. And in recognizing that, that's what motivates me to develop my science communication skills and attempt to bridge that gap that's created by these systems. Because I do believe that science is for everyone. So, all right, well, that's enough for this week. <laughs> Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. And you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at SamSplainingSci. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you learned a little bit and laughed a little bit. And I'll talk to you next week. Bye.